The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Grant Castleberry of Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I direct your attention to John 12, 12. While you're turning there, let me pray for us. Father, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and what we are not make us. For your glory and for Christ. Amen. Palm Sunday is sometimes called the triumphal entry because Christ entered into Jerusalem on that Sunday with people laying palms at his feet. You'll know that story. It's a famous story. But you might not realize that the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday is a hinge point in redemptive history. It is massively important for the expansion of the kingdom of God. Jesus said in Matthew 13, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it was grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nest in its branches. And what the triumphal entry is about is about the expansion of the kingdom of God. The expansion of the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus is a king. And when he came to this earth, he came to establish the kingdom. You remember when Jesus went preaching right after the temptation, what was his message? He went preaching the kingdom of God. I want to give you just a couple words as we go through this story, just as hooks that you can kind of use to navigate the story. The first is the palm branches. The palm branches. I want you to look at verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was going to Jerusalem. So there was a massive crowd in Jerusalem. Josephus uh, said in about 60 to 65 AD, there was about 2.7, 2.8 million Jews going into Jerusalem for the Passover. So you can think there's probably about 2 million Jews in, there in Jerusalem for this Passover. So if there's a large crowd, you're thinking out of 2 million, this crowd has to be thousands of people. And these people have heard about the raising of Lazarus from the dead. We're going to see that uh, a few verses. Verses later, and they're excited. They've heard about Jesus. They hear that Jesus is making his way from Bethany into the city. If you think about a map of Jerusalem, Bethany is almost due east. So almost due east from the city of Jerusalem. So Jesus is coming in uh, towards Jerusalem. He's going to come uh, up on the Mount of Olives, and he's going to come down through the Kidron Valley and then right into the gate. So they hear that he's coming, and uh, they go out to meet him. If you look at verse 13, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. Now, palm branches are symbolic in Israel's history. Psalm 92.12 says, the righteous flourish like the palm tree. 
the palm tree had come to represent political deliverance. So uh, about 150, 180 years earlier, actually, um, a Seleucid king, Antiochus Epiphanes, began a persecution of the Jews. You remember Alexander the Great uh, went east and conquered basically the known world. Alexander the Great died. And you remember how many kingdoms uh, were left from Alexander the Great? Four kingdoms, right? It splits into four kingdoms. One of those kingdoms was the Seleucid kingdom, and that was basically in Syria and Israel. And this Antiochus Epiphanes was the the king of that little dynasty, that little region. And he began a persecution of the Jews. He killed over 80,000 Jews. Uh, women, children. Uh, they called him the wicked one. But the, the worst thing that he probably did is he went and desecrated the temple and uh, basically set the temple up as a, um, as a temple for Zeus. It became a place of idolatry. So you can imagine the Jews hated him. And there was a Jew named Mattathias who basically began a guerrilla war against Antiochus Epiphanes and started to subvert the Seleucid government. And this man, Mattathias, uh, had two sons. You've probably heard of them. One was Judas Maccabees. Uh, Maccabees is the hammer, Judas the hammer. And what Judas did is he went, uh, Judah went into the temple and removed uh, all the things that had desecrated the temple. And then his brother uh, was named Simon, basically removed all those people uh, from the, the entire city of Jerusalem, and that was in 142 BC. But here's the point. When they came back into the city, they were welcomed by people with palm branches. That was the way that they were welcomed. The palm branches represented political deliverance. So do you see what's going on here with Jesus? What are they expecting Jesus to do? Political deliverance from who? The Romans. They've heard that, that Jesus has supernatural powers. He raised this man, Lazarus, and now they're going out, welcoming him with palm branches, expecting him to supernaturally deliver them from Rome. Look at the second part of verse 13. What are they saying? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They're quoting Psalm 118.25. That's a messianic psalm. That's a psalm that was sung by the temple choir when the Jews at Passover would come into the temple. The choir would be singing this psalm, so it was a psalm that everybody knew. It was one of those songs that everybody uh, was familiar with, and because it was a messianic song, they thought it was uh, appropriate. Um, the verse 25 of Psalm 118 says, save us, we pray, O Lord. And in Hebrew, that word save us is literally Hosanna. So when they're saying Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they're saying, Lord, save us, save us now. Uh, that's what they're shouting. They're saying, you are our deliverer. You have come to save us. And of course, they don't realize that Jesus is actually coming to save them, isn't he? 
He's coming to save them. If they would have just read uh, a few verses earlier in Psalm 118, Psalm 118.22 says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So he comes to save, but he doesn't come to save through political deliverance. He comes to save through a cross. And that leads to the prophecy. So, that, so first we saw the palm branches. Second, the prophecy. Look at verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. So again, Jesus is walking from Bethany. That's where Lazarus, Mary, and Martha lived. He is walking east towards Jerusalem. And as he pro- approaches the Mount of Olives, he approaches the village of Bethphage. Literally, that village is right on the other side of the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem. It's basically a suburb. It's right, uh, I mean, it, th- this would be like going to uh, William Peace College. It's that close. So we're talking about very close proximity here. And, and what Jesus does is he sends two disciples to get a donkey. And if you would, turn with me over to the left, to Mark chapter 11, to Mark 11, and Mark gives us more details on this point. Verse 1, he says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. So you can turn back to John 12. So that's the details there that Jesus said they're going to ask you why you need the cult. You'll say that the master has need of it. The Lord has need of it. They probably heard of Jesus as well. Remember the whole crowd is shouting. There's all this news of Jesus. They know who Jesus is. So when they hear this, they're willing to allow Jesus to use this donkey, this this cult of a donkey. And like I said, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. That's what Jesus is doing, is he is deliberately fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9. Now, Zechariah 9 is a prophecy of a shepherd king who will come to Jerusalem and save the people. That's what it's a prophecy of. This is what's quoted in verse 15. Look at verse 15. Fear not, daughter of Zion, daughter of Zion, that's, that's a, a nickname for Jerusalem. So fear not, Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. What's significant about the donkey, the, the, the colt that he rides on, is he doesn't come riding the steed that you would expect a king to ride on. What do you expect a king to ride on? Horse great horse. Even the Comanches rode horses, right? You expect him to come on a war horse. By the way, how does he come in Revelation? On a horse. In Revelation, he's coming to set up the eternal physical kingdom. 
he comes here on a donkey. Now, the donkey, he, I think he comes for two reasons. In the ancient world, whenever you would ride on a donkey, the donkey symbolized peace, peace. Jesus is coming to establish his kingdom through peace. And actually, that's what the, the next verse in Zechariah says, Zechariah 9.10, says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. The donkey represents peace. It also represents meekness. Meekness. What's meekness? Power under control. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is you have a sword, but it's sheathed. Jesus is coming meek and lowly, and that reflects the way that the kingdom of God advances in this world. God establishes his kingdom through the shame of the cross, not through political triumph. That's what the donkey represents. Then look at verse 16. Even his disciples didn't understand this. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So essentially, the disciples needed the witness and the illumination of the Holy Spirit after Jesus uh, had resurrected and, and ascended into heaven to really understand these things. They didn't, they didn't uh, connect the dots together. Jesus earlier, remember, told them, he says, you search the Scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they which bear witness about me. That all of the Old Testament, when you study it, through the types, the prophecies, points forward to the Davidic king that is to come to deliver his people. So that's the prophecy. Third, I want you to see the populace. Look at verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. So there was a crowd out in Bethany, right? And, and they saw what happened. I mean, this is, this is a significant event, right? Lazarus had been dead for three days. You know, this, this made the, the news periodicals, right? That, that he'd been dead. People knew that. And then he was raised from the dead. This was, this was a massive event that everybody heard about, that people in Jerusalem had heard about, that the Pharisees had heard about. The Pharisees, we, we heard, began to desire to put him to death because of this, and even Lazarus to death. So this was uh, very significant. And the people are coming into Jerusalem from Bethany, basically saying, have you heard have you heard about Lazarus? Have you heard about this thing that Jesus has done, that he's raised him from the dead? So they're bearing witness about who Jesus is and what has happened. Now, there's another crowd, and you see this in verse 18. These two crowds are converging, and this other crowd is coming from Jerusalem out to meet Jesus because they hadn't seen the sign, they hadn't seen Lazarus, but what? verse 18, they had heard that he had done the sign. So, just a mental picture, you have a large group coming with Jesus into Jerusalem, and you have a large group exiting from Jerusalem, going down into the valley, and beginning to lay palm branches and their cloaks on the road leading into Jerusalem, okay? Now, 
I want to ask the question, what is happening with the crowd? What is happening with the crowd? With both groups? There's massive excitement, right? That there's this spectacle that's happened, that Jesus has done this sign that can't be denied. And they have massive expectations of Jesus. You've seen what those expectations are with the palm trees. What's the expectation? Hey, you deliver us, buddy. That, that's the expectation. You come in and you relieve us from our conquerors, the Romans. Now, what happens when somebody's on your team and you fail to meet their expectations? They turn on you. They turn on you. That's exactly what the crowd does with Jesus. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Do you remember what he does? He goes into the temple. They're like, Jesus, aren't you going to raise the army up now? Aren't you going to start working the miracles now? No. He goes in, starts teaching. What does he do the next day? Clears the temple. He, He starts calling out, the Jewish people for a failure to worship God properly. Oh, and by the way, when he's leaving the temple, he says, this thing's cursed. In a few years, not a stone is going to be laying on top of another. So massive, unmet expectations. They completely missed the kingdom. They completely failed to comprehend what the kingdom is about. And that's why five days later, it's the same exact crowd that's saying, Pilate, you release Barabbas, not him. Why were they so mad? Because they thought he had failed them. John records, listen to this, John 19, 12. They're calling him a king on Sunday. Listen to what they say on Friday. The Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So he wasn't the king that they wanted, and they oppose him. When he was on the cross, you remember what they shouted? He saved others. Let him save himself. That's the populace. Then you have the Pharisees. Look at verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. What's going on here? Basically, there were two groups of Pharisees. One group was a more radical group, and they desired to execute Jesus Long before this, they desired to arrest him and bring him to, to trial and dispense with him. And another group was more moderate. They said, let's, look, let's wait. Uh, let's, let's not be uh, too proactive here. And so basically, the more extreme group turns to the other and see, what are you gaining by, by doing nothing? The whole world is now going out after Jesus. Look at these crowds. And obviously, that's hyperbole, that's exaggeration. They're just saying, look, the the mass of Jews that are here, they're all going after Jesus. So, look what you're doing by waiting. You're hurting our cause. 
Luke tells us that some of the Pharisees had the audacity to actually confront Jesus. Luke 19.39 says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, rebuke them for saying Hosanna. Rebuke people for, for calling out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus responds, he says, I tell you, if these people were silent, the very stones would cry out. Really remarkable statement. The important thing to see is that the, that the Pharisees make no pretense for accepting Christ. There's, there's not even the, the shouts of Hosanna, but they oppose Christ at every step with envy and hate. Now, we come to another group, the proselytes. Look at verse 20. Radically different, totally different from the populace and the Pharisees. Now, among those who went up to Jerusalem at the feast were some Greeks. These Greeks, they're, they're not Hebrews, they're not Jews, but they're what were called God-fearers. They're Gentiles, but they've adopted the religion of Judaism. And remember in the temple, there was a place that they could worship. It was the outer court called the court of the Gentiles. They couldn't go any further than that. But they could stay in the court of the Gentiles, and they could pray, and they could sing with the temple choir, and they could listen to the priest teach. And, and these people, look at verse 20, it says, those who went up to worship at the feast uh, they made a habit of going to the feast. They, they basically adopted all the feasts of, of the Jews in, in their worship of Yahweh. And then in verse 21, it says, So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, people debate why they came to Philip. You know, Philip is a Greek name. Philip obviously knew Greek. Uh, so perhaps they felt like they had an ally with Philip that they could talk about. And um, Philip uh, basically is not really sure what to do, so he tells Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus about these groups of Gentiles that are wishing to have an audience with him. That's what it means when it says that they wish to see Jesus. It's not that they just wish to, to, to see him from a distance. What they want is an interview. They want to be able to sit down and talk to the Lord Jesus and ascertain how he's the fulfillment of Judaism, the Old Testament prophecies. That's what's going on. Alfred Edersheim, he, he makes an interesting observation. He says, Jesus's ministry is bracketed by Gentiles. You remember who came and visited him in the stable? The wise men. And who has come to visit him at the end? These Greeks. He says, quote, not now in the stable of Bethlehem, but in the temple are the wise men, the representatives of the Gentile world, offering their homage to the Messiah. Philip is unsure about what to do with this, and that's why he goes to Andrew. And he's unsure probably because of two reasons. Remember, many times Gentiles had come to see Jesus, and Jesus had told them, my ministry is for the Jew. My ministry is first for the Jew. And Jesus had said that many times, and, and Philip had obviously overheard that. So he's like, oh, is, is, is Jesus going to want to, to talk to these people? And then also because 
talking with Gentiles in Jerusalem during the Passover was not the cool thing to do. I mean, these people were outcasts to the religion, essentially. I mean, they were accepted, kind of. So, to, to be seen talking with a large group of Gentiles, that's, that's not the popular way if you're going to advance the kingdom uh, to go about things. So, there's that hesitancy, and of course, Andrew uh, immediately goes and tells Jesus. And what's interesting is John doesn't tell us whether or not Jesus actually met with the Gentiles. I think he probably did. I assume that he did, but it's not explicitly stated in the text. But what is most important, and I think this is Jesus' response to the Gentiles and all those that are around him, is what we see last, and that's the purpose, the purpose for why he came. And look at verse 23. This gives clarification and meaning to everything that's going on here on Palm Sunday. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That phrase right there marks a massive shift in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is like a hinge in the gospel of John. Let me explain that. The hour is not a literal hour. It's not a 60-minute hour. The hour is a specific time period for a designated purpose. And all throughout the gospel of John, Jesus has stated, my hour has not yet come. So do you remember with, with his mother at Cana? Jesus says, John 2, 4, my hour has not yet come. John 4, 21, with the woman at the well, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming. It's not here, it's coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. John 7.30, people were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So there you see God is providentially governing when they can even arrest him, and they can't because his hour has not yet come. And the same is true in John 8.20, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. But here... Jesus says, my hour has come. Jesus knew exactly what was going on in the Passion Week. That's why he went to Jerusalem for this hour. And right here, after this hinge, there's a shift all through the rest of the gospel. And you see at the beginning of John 13, it says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. And Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What an interesting thing to say in the context of the cross. Think about this. He's coming for the cross, but Jesus describes the, the cross as being glorified. Let me explain that in a little bit. So, the glory of God is the manifestation of who God is. You remember the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. It, it's the radiance of the character of God. Moses asked to see the glory of God. 
And God said in Exodus 33, he says, okay, you can come up on the mountain. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to put my hand over the rock. God doesn't have a hand. It's anthropomorphic. It's, it, it's mind-blowing to think about. God's a spirit, okay? But God says, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to put my hand over. You can't see my front, but you can see my back. And as the Lord passes Moses, the Lord proclaims his name. God says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. You hear that? So that's what God's saying about himself, that he has mercy for thousands, that he, he gives forgiveness of sins, but by no means clears the guilty. What's that? Justice. So the cross, when Jesus is up on the cross, what's happening, happening theologically? The sin and the punishment that we deserve, the wrath of God that we deserve, is being poured out on the Son. So in that one moment, God is demonstrating both the mercy and the justice of God, the grace and the wrath of God. Jesus is displaying that. Jesus is God. He was with God in the beginning. Remember John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Jesus understands the glory of God. And at the cross, Jesus will display the glory of God to the world. He elaborates further. Look at verse 24. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is such a fascinating statement he makes about the kingdom of God. It's a parable. And he says, look, this is, this is how the kingdom advances. The kingdom is like a grain of wheat. And how does a grain of wheat bear fruit? You have to put it in the ground, and the grain of wheat has to die. But if the grain of wheat dies and germination happens and photosynthesis happens, then, the, then it bears fruit, and much more wheat comes from that death. And that right there is the paradox of the kingdom of God. That for the kingdom to advance, the king must die. Isaiah 53.10 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. You could translate that. He will see his seed. Jesus will see his seed through his own death. Because it's only through the death of Jesus Christ that you and I can enter the kingdom of God. You realize that? It's only through forgiveness of sins, which Jesus ac accomplished through his death, that you and I can enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus further explains this paradox to us. Look at verse 25. He says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This is a Jewish idiom, and it means that you love something so much that all your other loves are hate by comparison. And Jesus says, look at my own life. I care about the kingdom so much, I'm willing to give up my life so that the kingdom may advance. 
and I expect the same for all of my disciples. Look, if you want to see the kingdom advance, if you want to enter the kingdom, you have to be willing to sacrifice your life, that you must love the king so much, you must have that type of faith that you're willing to give up your life for eternal life. And then he says, verse 26, he says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus says, look, it's really simple. If you want to enter this kingdom that I'm establishing, you must be willing to follow me. Akaluthio. You must be able to see what I'm doing. I'm, I'm establishing this kingdom in a countercultural way. Yeah, you're not going to die for the sins of the world, but you have to be willing to give up your life just the same way that I am giving up my life. And Jesus said statements like this over and over and over and over again. Luke 9, 23, for example, if anyone wants to come after me, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. He must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. But if you do that, Look what Jesus says, the Father will honor that person. If you serve me, if you follow me, the, the Father himself will honor you. The kingdom of God is about seeking the honor of God rather than the honor of men. Now verse 27, and this is the last verse we're going to look at. He says, now is my soul troubled. Isn't that interesting? He's focused on the cross. He's focused on taking on our sin, the wrath of God. And in that moment, he says, my soul is troubled. My soul is troubled. He's going to say the same thing in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, he says, my soul is troubled. Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But he's saying, my very soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But... For this purpose, I have come to this hour. I have come for the purpose of taking on the trouble of sin upon myself. That's why I'm here. And just parenthetically, do you remember what Jesus said to the disciples just a few days later? He says, let not your heart be troubled. Jesus' heart was troubled, so yours would not have to be in this world. You know where you can stand with God regardless of all the bad things that could possibly happen to you, you do not need to be troubled about where you are with the Lord because he was troubled for us. That's why he came. He says, that's why I'm here, that this is the purpose I've come to this hour. So with that, I just want to help us understand briefly what Jesus is saying about the kingdom of God. I want to give you several things about what Jesus is saying about the kingdom of God. First, let me just define it for you. The kingdom of God is God's rule over his people. That much is clear, right? Jesus is saying, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must serve me. You must follow me. It's his rule over his people. And secondly, the kingdom of God advances through the cross. The kingdom of God is a reality that's, that's here, we can't see it, but it advances through the cross. Paul says in Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And the important thing, I think, to think about here is that the cross was Jesus' plan A. 
The cross was Jesus' plan A from the beginning. I heard a popular preacher on the radio. I, I was down in Dallas at Criswell College and heard him, heard him preach, and he said the cross was plan B. He said the plan A was that he was going to establish a political kingdom for Israel. And then when that didn't work out, uh, he called an audible. Literally, that's what he said. He called an audible. And then the cross. Uh-uh. The cross ain't an audible. It's plan A. The, the kingdom doesn't advance through electing your guy into office. The kingdom advances through the cross and the message of the gospel. Without the cross, there is no kingdom. Period. Third, the kingdom of God is paradoxical. Okay? Everything that you would think about the kingdom from this world is wrong. Everything that the world would tell you is right about the kingdom, it's actually the opposite. So the way up in the kingdom is how? Down. The way up in the kingdom is to be first? No, to be last. The way up in the kingdom is to ride into Jerusalem and, and, and take control? No, the way up in the kingdom is to die on a bloody cross. The way up in the kingdom is to take up your cross daily and follow him. The kingdom advances not with the conquering of the king, but with the death of the king. And I think that tells you something about how we're to live in this world, and we'll talk about that in a second. And fourth, we see that the kingdom of God is already here, but it's not yet fully consummated. It's already here in a spiritual sense. Remember what Jesus said to Pilate? He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. It's, it's here in a spiritual sense. If you are a believer, you are in the kingdom of God. If you're a Christian, you're in the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is not a physical place. So, Contrary to what Rome teaches, you can't go to the Vatican and say you're in the kingdom of God. This church building isn't the kingdom of God. Now, there's Christians in this building that are part of the kingdom of God. It's a spiritual kingdom. When the Lord Jesus comes back at that point, it becomes both a spiritual kingdom and a physical kingdom. Does that make sense? It's here. It's here spiritually but it's not yet fully consummated. So let me give you just a few points of application. First, first, and, and this is what Jesus is doing, and this is what Jesus is saying. Seek the kingdom first. The kingdom of God is the most real reality in the universe. The kingdom of God will last forever. We can't see it, but everything else will fade away besides the kingdom. When the Lord comes back, the kingdom will become very real, and you will see it with your physical eyes. So the priority is, this is what Jesus says, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew six thirty three. He says, first, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. 
you must make sure that you have entered into the kingdom of God. It's, it, it's, it's the most important thing that you can do in your life is to make sure that you are a citizen of the kingdom that is to come. And then you live your life for that kingdom. You bank everything for that kingdom. That's what Jesus says. You want to preserve your life now? You're going to lose it. You want to save your life in the kingdom? Then you, you're willing to lose it now. Seek first the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus demands of all of his disciples. Second, know the tactics of the kingdom. Know the tactics of the kingdom. How does the kingdom of God advance right now? Through the proclamation of the gospel, the good news of peace. The kingdom advances through the gospel. It advances no other way. It advances no other way. Not through political activism, not through social justice, not through helping the poor. Sure, th those, are, those are good things to do, those are evidences that we have been brought into the kingdom if we, if we help and feed the poor, but the kingdom advances through the proclamation of the gospel. And the church is getting really sidetracked on that. We're trying to build the kingdom in this world and say, hey, we're, 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 we're winning elections. Look, we're, we're developing these, these social systems for, for poor people or refugees or whoever. I'm not saying any of those things are wrong, but that's not the kingdom. Notice also, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, you, you had the crowd, the Pharisees, and the proselytes, the Gentiles. The crowd, th this is the majority of the people. Did they understand the kingdom? Uh-uh. They didn't understand the kingdom. Most people that you encounter in your life will not understand the kingdom of God. And that includes people in the church. You know, you meet with family members like, wait, what are you, you're giving that much money to your church? You're serving and giving that much time? What are you doing? You, you pass up a promotion so you could go live closer to a church or so you could move overseas as a missionary? What's that about? It doesn't make sense to them. The kingdom of God never makes sense to the crowd. Moreover, you will receive direct opposition. The Pharisees are always going to be there. Okay, I, I'm going to say something a little controversial who are the Pharisees today? Think about this. Who are the legalists who directly oppose Jesus and his church? Religious moralist. Who are we talking about? Secular political rulers. We're talking about people that are consumed and obsessed with themselves that have a self-righteous standard, which, by the way, they don't keep, and they close churches. They say, we're not going to abide by the same standards that we're asking churches to keep. And they're envious that people would dare worship somebody else. And they stand opposed to Christ and His church. 
And that's something that we're going to have to get used to in this country. Jesus doesn't care about the Pharisees. You know, they say, Jesus, stop telling your people to worship him. He says, you shut up. The very rocks are going to cry out if they don't. You, you have to know what the agenda of the kingdom is. Because the devil, the world, and sin is going to oppose you at every single step. And, and if you're a butterfly Christian, if you're a rose garden Christian, you know in the Marine Corps we always say we don't promise you a rose garden. If you, if you give up at the first sign of opposition, you won't be able to be used to expand the kingdom. You have to be willing to press through the opposition, and you have to be willing to swim against the stream of the crowd because you have a different mindset. And here's why we do this. We desire the future kingdom, okay? The Lord Jesus has already established the kingdom of God. It's done. At the cross, he defeats Satan and the kingdom war is already over. It's already over. So you ask, why are we still in this world battling against sin, battling against Satan, battling against all these things? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus is adding more and more people daily to this kingdom that have not yet come in yet. And he's waiting for the fullness of his people to come in. But when they do, when everyone that is supposed to be in the kingdom is in the kingdom, do you know what will happen in that moment? The Lord Jesus will return. And his future kingdom will be established forever and ever and ever. And Christ is literally standing at the right hand of the Father, waiting until he puts all his enemies as a footstool underneath his feet, and then he's going to come down, and it's going to be curtains on the world and on the devil and on sin. And you need to live your life in light of that reality. You know what the future holds. You know that the battle has already been won. It might look like we're on the losing team now when you lose your job for standing for Christ. It might look like you're on the losing team now when the populace is chanting something against the Lord Jesus. But history's settled. The future is fixed, and his name is Jesus Christ. And the next time he comes, he's not coming on a donkey. He's coming on a white horse. And guess what? His sword is unsheathed. And there's fire in his eyes. And there's a name written on his thigh. King of kings and Lord of lords. And his kingdom will last forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the reality of the kingdom that you establish the kingdom in a way that is unknown and untold in this world, paradoxical to us, that you would come and establish your kingdom through a cross, through the shame of the cross, and turn this world upside down. 
And Lord, what a glorious reality it is to know that we have been brought into the kingdom through the blood of the cross. I pray, Lord, that we would live for that kingdom by taking up our cross daily and following you, despite what the crowd has to say, despite what the Pharisees have to say, that we would live your life, our lives, for your eternal kingdom. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.